forward, is, or is that going to cause issues though? Right, you can dob yourself in on this one. Who would say they've got a good sense of humour? Totally. <laughs> Just ask my children. <laughs> Just ask Malcolm Gill. <laughs> Yesterday, our group got called out from the stage by the speaker because we wore those blue hats. And Rod made quite a noise about it, and Malcolm Gill said from the stage, there's always one clown in every circus. <laughs> I didn't plan on sharing that, Rod, but anyway. I think that's called an own goal. It's, uh, it's called my proto-sermon. I'm, uh, I'm not particularly funny, I don't think, but humour is very important. I like humour, and uh, I have a particular type of humour that I enjoy. You probably don't enjoy it. It's uh, that dumb humour, stupid humour. I quite like toilet humour as well. It depends who the butt of the joke is. But humour is getting more and more... Listen, there's much more where that came from today. We're in Judges chapter 3. It's one of my favourite passages of the Bible, and you'll work out why in a minute. It's fantastic. There's, there's a lot of humour in the, in, in the world, and perhaps it might be said that humour is getting more and more dangerous. An Englishman, an Irishman and a Scotsman walk into a bar, and they start speaking about them, their sons. My son says the Englishman, was born on St George's Day. So obviously we decided to call him George. That's a real coincidence, answered the Scot. My son was born on St Andrew's Day. So obviously we decided to call him Andrew. That's incredible, what a coincidence, said the Irishman. Exactly the same thing happened with my son Pancake. (laughs) Don't know if that's a good joke or not, but I liked it. Any Irish people with us this morning? Irish backgrounds? Oh, Trish is, that's all right. Trish, please don't be offended. It's okay. Uh, These are funny, aren't they? The Irish people are always the stupid ones in those jokes, aren't they? It's funny, though. I did some research this week, and lots of countries have these types of jokes where they make fun of different nationalities. In China, there's three people that walk into a bar, or a Chinese, an American, and a Japanese person. I'm not sure which one is the butt of their joke at all. Who knows? Could have been one of the other two. In Italy, it's a little bit different, apparently. They have in their uh, jokes, the Italian, of course, but the French and the German. And in their jokes, everyone is stupid except for them. That's how it works. They are fine and everyone else is an idiot. Can you laugh in a dangerous way? Today's Bible passage is designed to encourage us to laugh. To laugh, especially at that silly sort of toilet poo joke humour, which is right here in this passage in front of us. It might seem strange to us that this sort of stuff is in the Bible, but we are encouraged today to laugh. And not just to laugh, but to laugh as God himself laughs. You say, that seems a strange thing to say. 
I want to encourage you this morning as we look at this passage in Judges chapter 3 to laugh at all the right places. Not at what I say, but at what God's word says. See, the reason for laughing today is laughing in the face of God's oppressors. The oppressors of God's people. The people who oppose God. They are laughable. And so with... Uh, uh, no coincidence, we have three judges. They don't walk into a bar, but they all save God's people this morning. And so we're going to have a look at these three judges in uh, the second half of Judges chapter 3. Uh, you might like to ask a question a little later on this morning as well. And so that's at slido.com and the hashtag is HBSP. Uh, there's probably questions to ask because this is a strange old passage. Let me pray and then we'll get in and have a laugh together and see uh, what God's word says. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, be with us this morning in this fantastic passage of Scripture that shows us uh, your character more clearly, we ask, please, that you'd help us to understand it, uh, that you'd help us uh, to, uh, to see you more clearly. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's no connection to the humour at all, but does anybody like colouring in? Is there a colouring in people here? Paul, you're a colouring in fan. Really? Good. Excellent. Anyone else? Colour Siobhan is? Jen is, it's become, Leah's as well, it's become a bit of a thing, hasn't it, over recent times, particularly for adults. It used to just be a thing for kids, uh, but now it's an excuse, of course, for grown-ups to go into Smiggle and pretend they're buying stuff for their niece and nephew, but they're not, it's for themselves, uh, and, uh, and have a nice pile of coloured pencils and textures at home. Uh, you might like colouring in, or you might not like colouring in, but the first section of scripture we see here in the book of Judges, chapter 3, verses 7 to 11 is very much like a colouring book. Now you might say, how does that work? Well, let me explain. After having done the background in chapters 1 and 2 and the early part of chapter 3 of the book of Judges, finally we come to the judges themselves. And the first we meet is a man named Othniel. We've already met him, in fact, in uh, Judges chapter 1. He's described there as a faithful man. We know that uh, unlike many in the nation of Israel, he married well within the faith. He married Caleb's daughter, who was, uh, if you like, royalty in the nation of Israel. And in many ways, he is the model judge. Not only is he a good person, a faithful person, but his judge His judge nature fits the cycle that we saw last week. Look on the screen at the cycle of the book of Judges that we see take place and how that corresponds in the story of Othniel. We see in verse 7 that the people sin, like we see at the top of the cycle here. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and they served the Baal and the Ashtoreth. We see in verse 8 what we see in the cycle here, that God is angered and delivers them over to his enemies. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and sold them into the hand of that guy, king of that place. And the people of Israel served him for eight years. Here, they fit the cycle perfectly. The people in verse 9 cry out to God. This is not to be understood as a statement of repentance, but more saying, what are you doing to us? It's not repentance, but self-pity. And they cry out to God and God raises up for them in verse 9, a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. This follows the cycle perfectly. 
So that when he rescues the people of Israel, verse 11 tells us that the land had rest for 40 years. And then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. He's a model judge. Not only is he a model judge in the sense of being faithful and true to God, but he's the model judge in the sense that he perfectly follows this cycle that we saw in Judges chapter 2. And this is, in, this is how this man is in many ways like a colouring book. You know what you're like when you get that colouring book? It's all black lines and white paper. It's just an outline. And this man is just an outline of a judge. There's no colour or vitality or humanity or empathy or relatability in this story at all. It's crisp, clean, black and white, clear. There's no colour whatsoever. Why is this? Why are we given a judge like this when we know that so many of the judges in this book are are full of colour and vitality and life and relatability? Well, the reason we meet this judge First, this Judge Othniel is because this is a theology book before it's a story book. And this passage of Scripture wants to remind us of the cycle of the judges and how God is at the centre of that cycle. See, verse 9 tells us, The Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Who did it? God did it. Who saved them? God saved them. Yes, he used this man, Othniel, but it was God who raised up the judge. See, the problem is, in all of the colourfulness of the other judges and in the colourfulness of our own lives, it's easy for God to be obscured in the picture. Humans have a habit of obscuring God's work in their lives. We know this to be true, don't we? If you hear someone deliver their testimony, that's a wonderful thing. But it's all too easy for the testimony of that person to overpower what God has actually done in their lives. The colourful story of the person helps us to miss the point of what God is doing. And here, we have right at the very beginning, after hearing all the background and the the, uh, cycle that God has put forward, here we see a colourless judge to show us that God is the one who raises up the judges for his people. Here we cannot miss the point. The Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. The compassionate God is the one who saves. The compassionate God is the one who judges his people through this man Othniel and through all the other judges as well. And so he's the the model saviour because he is a faithful man, but he's a model saviour because he shows off what God has done and what God is doing amongst the people. But as we read on, we find out that he's not quite the model judge. He's an almost model judge. Look again at verse 11. So then the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel the son of Kenaz died. Verse 12, there's a heading there, imagine it wasn't there, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Othniel seems flawless, perfect, righteous, faithful, but his his saving work cannot bring lasting peace to God's people. This is why he's only an almost model saviour. 
And here is why the punchline of the Bible is so wonderful for us, because Jesus is our saviour and our judge, giving us not only peace for a short period of time, but for all our life and for all eternity. See, it's in the death of Jesus that peace comes, not in his life, but in his death. And in his death, he defeats death forever, giving us peace with God forever. But it's more than that, isn't it? It's not just the death of Jesus that gives us peace with God, but it's precisely because he did not stay dead that he can give us eternal peace with God. Look at this passage in the book of Hebrews chapter 4. You see it on your screen, maybe jot it down uh, to read the whole chapter a little later on. It says this, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There's a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There's peace with God to be had. The peace with God that God offers through Jesus Christ is not a maybe peace or a it depends peace or if you behave yourself type of peace with God. None of these things is what God does for us. He delivers true, lasting and eternal peace to all who will trust in the Lord Jesus. Lasting peace is only found through the true Saviour, the true Judge, the one whose death defeats death forever and whose resurrection brings new and eternal life to all who believe in him. This is the saviour we trust in. And God raised him up for that task too. He raised him up to be our peace, to be our saviour, to deliver us from our enemies of sin and death and the devil. And he took all of that on himself. The example of this judge, Othniel, shows us God's gracious and compassionate kindness to his people then, but also to his people now. Well, we secondly turn to the second of our judges right at the very end of the passage. This guy gets one verse. Verse 31, look at him there. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. We don't know much about this guy. That's all we know. We don't know where he came from. We don't know really even how he did that thing with the poking stick for the cattle. No idea. He just killed 600 people with a cattle stick product. It's amazing. And he saved God's people. Now, whatever we don't know about this guy and whatever we would like to know about this guy, what is clear is this. God, again, saves his people. Again, this guy has not much colour about him, but on this occasion, he has not much outline to him either. It's almost a blank page. But what we know is this, God has saved his people once again. I don't know if you've ever had someone strange come into your house. It's a bit of a minister's uh, uh, work problem sometimes, but uh, about three or four months ago, I had uh, an older lady and her husband turn up to my house. They, my house is right next door and they walked up the pathway and I was in my office which is right right there and I was watching them walk up the pathway. I thought, oh, I don't know these people. They'll probably knock on the door and say hello and, uh, and then we can work out why they're here. And So I, I sort of met them at the door and they slowly uh, pushed past me at the door and walked straight into the house and into the lounge room and sat down in the lounge room 
And I still didn't know who they were. They started talking to me. Oh, looking forward to the meeting today. It's going to be fantastic and all these sorts of things. And after a while, I sort of looked strangely at them and said, would you mind telling me who are you and why you're here? I don't know if that's ever happened to you. It happens to me multiple times. Something about a public house like that that happens. But I still don't know who those people were or why they were there. They didn't explain much. They obviously realised I didn't know who they were. And so they left as quickly as they came. <laughs> Very strange. They might have been angels. Who knows? Who knows what they were? Um, they were very strange. Um, but I don't know who they were. Don't know where they came from. Don't know why they were there. Don't know why they left. Who knows? Who knows what the story was with these people? They will forever remain a mystery in my life. And Shamgar is a bit like that in the book of Judges. He sort of turns up out of nowhere and he leaves out of nowhere. And in the middle, we've got nothing much. But we do know this. God saves his people once again. So what does this verse 31 teach us? Well, if anything, it's got to, it has to teach us about who God is. Most recently in our Bible study groups, we've been studying the book of Matthew, haven't we? It's been a great time, the early chapters of the book of Matthew. And what we've seen in Matthew chapter 2 is lots of different uh, ways in which Jesus was answer to the prophecy of the Old Testament. And at the end of Matthew chapter 2, we've seen a, a particular prophecy that, that Jesus will be called a Nazarene. You might have read that in your Bible study groups. You might have done a bit of digging and found out that there's no verse of the Old Testament that says he will be a Nazarene. That's a bit strange, isn't it? How is it that he's fulfilling that prophecy then? Well, while there's no specific verse saying that he will be a Nazarene, there are a great number of verses saying that the Saviour will be outcast and despised and looked down upon. And that's exactly what a Nazarene was, wasn't it? We know later in the Gospels that people say of Jesus, could anything good come out of Nazareth? Sometimes people say that about us, don't they? Could anything good come out of Ellensburg? They say that in Shire. I give them a hard time about it. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus was outcast and despised and looked down upon. And people think, could anything good come out of this place? But God saved the world through the person from this unknown place where nothing good could come from. The good news is, Jesus saves as, if you like, an unknown saviour. Like this guy, Shamgar does. They save in the same way. But secondly, this little, this little episode in verse 31 teaches us something else. While we are not judges, we are not saviours, it's an encouragement to us, isn't it, to be a faithful nobody. The book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verse 11, tells us, no matter how important you think you are to your family, in, within a couple of generations, nobody will even know your name. It's kind of harsh, isn't it? Not many generations. Probably before the end of this century, nobody will even remember you were here. But we could spend all of our life trying to be a worldly somebody that will be forgotten in it less than a hundred years time or we can content we can be content to be a godly nobody who is used by God to do eternal good see this is the good news what we do is eternally significant in the sight of God when we serve him when we love him when we work for him we're not going to be saviors and judges but like this guy we're a nobody who can work for him be valued by him and live for him for his reputation. 
I want to encourage you. Be a godly nobody and stop striving to be a worldly somebody. There's no gain in it at all. Well, we come thirdly to the third of our judges, the meat and the sandwich, this man Ehud. And if there were no colour in the first two judges that we've talked about, there's heaps of colour in this guy. There's twists and turns everywhere and we see him to be the surprising saviour. Now, before we jump into these verses in verses 12 to 30, we need to get ourselves into the mindset of the Israelite person. Walk in the shoes of the Israelite. Understand where they're coming from. And as we do that, we'll see just what this passage is saying to us. Well, unlike Shamgar before, uh, just before us, uh, Ehud's uh, judgeship follows the cycle a little more. Look at verse 12 to 14. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what is evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. 18 years of oppression. 18 years of King Eglon taking control of God's people. But what you might not notice is just how bad this is. Verse 13 tells us they take the city of Palms. We might not know what that is, but the city of Palms is the city of Jericho. The very first city that they took when they came into the Promised Land now goes back to the Canaanite people and you're left thinking, is all of this Promised Land stuff going to be reversed? This is bad news. And yet, verse 15 tells us that God's people once again cry out to him and God raises up a judge or a saviour for his people. We see in verse 15 that this saviour is Ehud, a left-handed man. Now that's a surprise to any left-handed people here this morning. There's plenty, honey, there's a few around. Now, for us, left-handedness is just... I can't say anything, actually. It's just a thing. Let's just put it that way. I'm on the record. <laughs> but it doesn't really matter. No. It's, a, it's a butt of a joke. It doesn't really matter. It's, it's being left-handed. It's just, it's just different. That's the way it is for us. But in the Bible, it's a little different. There are vast many references in the Bible to being at the right hand or... At God's right hand, or the right hand being the place where the power is. Indeed, all throughout the history of the Israelite people, all of the battles would have been fought with the left hand, so that those of you that put your hand up uh, and saying you were left handed, you would have been trained to fight right handed yourself. So, in this world that we're talking about, of the nation of Israel, being left handed is not just different, it's actually less than ideal. But further to that, it's most likely that the word here that that the writer of Judges uses suggests that he's not just left-handed, but that something is actually wrong with his right hand. It's likely that it's not just left-handedness because uh, that's the way he is, but left-handedness because his right hand has a disability of some sort. See, this makes sense, doesn't it? Because Ehud was told... You're going to be our guy to go and give a tribute to the king, to King Eglon. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? If the guy that you're going to send has some sort of deformity in his right hand, which is his fighting hand, 
He's going to be the dude you send because he's no threat whatsoever. He's no threat at all. And so he is the one that takes the the tribute. But this is where it's a surprise. Look at verse 16. He who had made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. He didn't tell anyone about this. And he places his sword in an unexpected place. It's not on whether it's on the inside or the outside. It's not on his left thigh, but on his right thigh. An unexpected place. Verse 17 tells us that he goes to the king and he's the one that presents the tribute, the payment. Here we are, you are our king and we are the servants and we're putting this tribute down before you. But look at the detail in verse 17. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. What's the deal with that? A very fat man. Is this fat shaming in the Bible? Have we got just here a a description of an unhealthy, uh, slovenly person with no nutrition? Well, I think both of those are our modern way of looking at things. When we put ourselves in in our Israelite shoes, we start to see why this man would be a very fat man. He's a very fat man because he's taken advantage of the people of Israel in the land of milk and honey for the last 18 years. He doesn't have to fight. He's at a time of peace for his nation. And so he can literally gorge the supplies of the people around him. Think of a tyrant today. You know those countries of the world where there's a particular tyrant that's ruling and all of the people are super poor, but the person in charge is mega rich. That's like this guy, King Eglon. He's super fat because everybody else is battling, especially the Israelite people in the nation. So the reason he's very fat is because he has been so oppressive for so long. And Ehud leaves him the gift, the tribute, maybe it was food, I don't know, and puts it there in front of the king and then they leave. And yet as they leave, Ehud says, no, hang on, I'm going back. I've got a secret message for the king. So he goes to the king and the king says, yes, I'll listen to your secret message. And again, knowing the story, we think he's mad. Why would he listen to the secret message of the king? But the secret message from God. But the king says, yes, I will listen because he's a pluralist. He will listen to all of the gods, hoping that he can get something of benefit from all of the gods of the area. So he sends his advisors away and the story, as we read it, slows down into almost slow motion. You can imagine the extremely fat king getting off his throne with considerable difficulty and staggering to his feet under his enormous frame. And then we read in verse 21, Ehud reached with his left hand, picture it in your mind, took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. The hilt also went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade For he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch, closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him, and locked them. It won't be surprising to hear that these are my life verses. (laughs) I love them. I think it's just, I think it's funny. I think it's hilarious. Why is it Why is it funny? Well, because we're told in painstaking detail that the very thing that he was using for oppression, 
that led to his physical fatness is the very thing that brings about his downfall, the very thing that will be embarrassing to him and his people, and the very thing that is so wonderfully sweet for God's people. But it gets worse. The servants who were told to wait outside, they start to smell that lovely aroma that's coming out of the, uh, out of the throne room, quite literally. And there was a toilet in there. We, we hear uh, that it's in the closet. We're not supposed to think of that in the same sort of way as we think of our own closet. He wasn't doing his business in there. But they could smell what was going on. And they thought, well, we'll wait to the point of embarrassment. When I was a kid, uh, I used to enjoy being in that room. Maybe you enjoy being in that small room of the house. My parents would love embarrassing me in front of other people. Say, have you been flushed to Bondi? Have you been flushed to Bondi? It is embarrassing to be in the toilet too long, isn't it? Where's he been? He's been there for such a long time. It's embarrassing. And so they wait to the point of embarrassment. And then they finally open the door. And verse 25 tells us, They took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord, the King, dead on the floor. And as an Israelite, in their shoes, we are to laugh. The enemy's been defeated. By the least likely person. He can't even use his right hands. But they've been undone by their own oppression. And where to laugh? Because God laughs at his enemies in the same way. Look at this passage from Psalm 2 on the screen. It's a fantastic passage of scripture that reminds us about this. Why do the nations, like King Eglon, rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying... Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God laughs. Because you want to take on God? It's like someone saying, I'm going to take on Mike Tyson in a boxing bout. That's laughable. It's like the child pretending to try and tackle their dad to the ground in the lounge room. It's laughable. It's silly. No one stands up to God. But there's more to this story even than what we've seen at first glance. See, Ehud runs away. He's kept safe. He gets up to the mountains. He blows the trumpet. And there's a battle between God's people and the Moabite people. And God's people win the battle. Look at verse 29. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel and the land had rest for 80 years. See, there's another laughable piece in here, one final detail. The men are described as strong, but here's another way of putting it. Strong of build. It's not that they're strong of muscle, they're strong of build. What does that mean? They're fat too. That's what it's saying. The very oppression that the people were under is now the tool that God uses to get rid of their oppressors. They're so fat themselves, these soldiers, they can't run away quickly enough and they're taken out by God's people as well. And so we've got this story full of colour and action. A Sunday school story with no options for craft. Imagine that. Verse 22, very much though, is a coffee cup mug verse for me anyway but what does this passage say to us well two things as we finish first God raised up here a surprising saviour 
Not only a lefty, but the weakest, least daunting person you could think of. And that's what God does, doesn't he? God often works in this way, taking the least likely person and making them the one to do his work so that his glory might be seen. Look at what it says about Jesus himself in Isaiah 53 on the screen. He grew up before him like a young plant and a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. This is describing Jesus. Paul says in 2 Corinthians a similar message as we've seen recently. For he was crucified in weakness but lives in the power of God. But we are also weak in him. But dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. And then we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18 that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us being saved, it's the power of God. God uses surprising saviours. Who would have thought a cross would save the world? This shows us that God continually uses surprising people for his purposes. He uses a surprising saviour in Ehud. He uses a surprising saviour in Jesus. It looks dumb to the world around us that we would worship someone who died on a cross, but it's the truth of where the power of God is comes from but it's not the only way that God's surprising work takes place so imagine for a moment God had to pick his team of who would belong to him we've all had that schoolyard experience where somebody stands as the captain and picks the people for their team of course you pick the best gifted most wonderful people first to be on your team even if you don't like them but God doesn't do that look at this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 26 Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God has chosen to delight in a team of misfits like you and me. He's chosen us to be a part of his team, not because of our wonderful performance before him in the past, present or the future, but because he's chosen to lavish his love upon us and that's all. And that's wonderful. That's wonderfully freeing for us. Because we see that God works in surprising ways, taking on surprising people. We remember once again that the centre of the picture is God who holds our salvation from beginning to end. He's in charge of it and he will see it to conclusion. As chapter 3 verse 9 says, God raised up a deliverer for his people who saved them and he's raised up Jesus to save us and he's called us misfits to belong to him. God is a surprising God doing surprising things that we wouldn't imagine but he's chosen us to be a part of his surprising plan. So three judges walk into a book and you're allowed to laugh. But I want to encourage you today that you can see God at the centre of this picture, bringing lasting peace to you and me through a nobody from Nazareth who died on a cross to bring us perfect peace with God. This is our gracious, kind saviour. You might like to ask a question. It's time to do that now. 
Uh, Slido.com, hashtag is HBSP. Let's have a think about that just now. Okay, a couple of questions that were here. Uh, how do you get that the strong, able-bodied men were, f- uh, were fat and not strong and fit? Um, because that's what the Hebrew word means in the background. So I don't, I don't always like to necessarily um, share all of that sort of stuff because I think it can be confusing. But I think uh, that, 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 is what the, that is what the word behind it can mean. It doesn't necessarily mean it does, but I think it matches the context. Uh, very much. The, the reason the guy was fat is not because he's nutrition, it's because he was an oppressor. And so it makes sense that actually the, the people that were the soldiers hadn't been well trained either. They were, they were oppressive. But you can imagine the, the oppressive scenario. You know, think of a tyrant like, uh, like Putin's got all the money in the world to do whatever he wants to do with and all the people are struggling in, in Russia. And the people close to him, they also have a lot of money as well, right? So they also have, the, the, the people around him have heaps of money as well. So it's not hard to imagine a very fat king and a whole bunch of fat soldiers as well. And that Hebrew word does allow for the translation of, of strong-bodied, um, which is a way of saying fat as well. Um, it could be that they were just strong men, but I think it makes better sense of the context um, to go that way with that translation. Uh, next thing, sometimes we can think of ourselves with superiority with regards to our weakness. So how can we avoid this? Is this wrong? Um, thank you for the question. I'm not quite sure what that is referring to. Uh, our weakness, well, you, I guess those two things, the reason I don't understand the question is those two things don't actually work together. So it's impossible to have true spiritual weakness with superiority. That's, it can't, you can't actually have those two things together. So... That's why I don't quite understand the question. So if you've asked that question, please come back at me at Morning Tea. Love to talk to you some more about that. Um, but certainly the two things aren't, aren't to go together. God gives his beautiful uh, grace and salvation to us as a gift to us uh, and, uh, and, and out of his grace and kindness. And so that's worth us um, praising him for. And we don't get that by our superiority. Uh, last one, the circus clown. Thanks, Rod. Like it. Praise be to God for giving his perfect judge and saviour in Jesus. Didn't quite understand the Hebrews 4 reference, though. Could you explain? Yeah, thanks, thanks, Rod. So at each of uh, the two stories at the beginning here in verse 11 and then at verse 30, the, the time of peace in the land of Israel, did you notice how it was described in verse 11? So the land had rest 40 years. And then in verse 30, uh, the land had rest 
for 80 years. So the way uh, the writer of Judges describes peace in the land is, is as rest. Um, and, and the writer of Hebrews picks this up, that peace with God is, is entering into his rest. Uh, and so uh, for us to have a saviour who does not die, uh, or, or is not dead because of his resurrection, uh, we, we have a, we have a saviour who delivers us into peace with God, but also into the rest of God as well. And so I think that's um, what the whole chapter of Hebrews 4 is referring to, and really worth a read after a, after a sermon like this. Uh, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've delivered to us salvation in the Lord Jesus. Nobody would have predicted that you would save the world through a man from Nazareth who would die on a cross and rise back to life again. But this is how you have brought salvation to the world. Lasting peace and rest with you comes through him. We thank you. The book of Judges shows us in just a small shadowy way of the big picture of what you're doing in this world through the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that though we did not desire you, you desired us. You came to us in the Lord Jesus and saved us and gave us new and eternal life, a relationship with you. And we ask, please, that strengthened by this knowledge and, and a reminder that it is that you would help us to go out into this world ready to serve you for Jesus' sake.